Welcome, uh, Song of Solomon, week two, as we continue in, that's well, week three, but chapter two, as we look at this SOS, Song of Solomon, Help Me Love. Uh, today, as we turn towards the scriptures, the hope is that it would challenge us, recognizing that all of us in the room this morning in very different places of our relationship journey here on earth, married, single, divorced, widowed, yet to be married, may never be married, um, it's a complicated text for complicated times, but the encouragement from scripture this morning is love is valuable and real, and we are meant to know both our vertical love for God lived out horizontally with one another. So will you close your eyes and we'll pray and we'll begin. Lord God, thank you so much for your scriptures to open us up and challenge us, reveal to us. Lord, we pray that we would hear you clearly. And Lord, we know that as we start talking about our earthly relationships, it brings up all sorts of baggage. And stuff going on. And so would you allow us to hear you clearly, confidently, you're beckoning and wooing us to love you more, Lord, and to love each other well. That our earthly love would be a picture of your heavenly love for us. In your great name we pray. Amen. Chapter 2, the title of your message, if you grab the bulletin, is called The Seasons of Love. The Seasons of Love of love. Alternate titles this morning that didn't make the cut, Dangerous Love, The Power of Love, and I recognize that's just way too much 80s rock overlap. And so <laughs> you've got Huey Lewis in your ears right now, anyone over the age of 40, but the seasons of love is what we're sticking with. And uh, when we talk about the love relationship, just briefly here, um, last week we introduced uh, the, the, the concept of Song of Solomon, there's actually two different men. There's the king who represents the world. There's the lover who represents Christ. Chapter 2 is super straightforward. It's just a healthy love relationship between the lover who represents Christ and the woman who represents us in the message. The Song of Solomon teaches us about our earthly relationships as well as our heavenly relationship. So the seasons of love. Now anyone that's been married for any time can tell you that marriages go through seasons. We were in one of those seasons We've been married about seven years, just over seven years. Difficult season, quite frankly. We were uh, invited to participate in a wedding, one of my best friends down at Golden Gardens. And it was a, a fall wedding, and the weather held just so, and, uh, you know, and it, was, it was beautiful, and everyone's dressed up. And it's, you know, at these wedding ceremonies, you're, you're celebrating the very best of earthly love. But there felt like a contrast. For we were, we were invited to dress up and participate in the wedding, but in our own marriage at seven years, we had hit a season of struggle. The details don't matter as much, but remodeling a house and buying a business and, and a new baby in the home. Now, our son was a couple weeks late, our second child, and this wedding was supposed to be like three weeks after my wife gave birth, but he was late. And so 11 days after giving birth, uh, Heather participated in the wedding. She, Squeezed herself into a wedding dress, looked beautiful, but she was in that post-pregnancy kind of reality of what a body looks like. And someone scurries up to her right away and says, oh, wonderful, when's your baby due? And she's like, oh. And, and, you know, and I'm dressed up, and instead of helping get my family to the, to, the, to the wedding ceremony on time, I had something with the guys I had to do. I'm gone. She's the new mom getting two kids ready, herself ready to a wedding and I tell you, it didn't feel very festive sitting there watching one of my best friends get married. Because I was definitely cognizant that, that seasons in marriage can be so beautiful and so joyful and so discouraging. 
And it was complicated that day because I felt this weight seven years in, as if I was seeing this fork in the road. Here's, you know, a friend married late and seen all this kind of new love, but for us it's seven years. The reality is it was a, a difficult season. And friends, it is so easy to confuse the season with the entirety of the year or the decade or the life. And we run the risk when we see the season that we're in as definitive how we'll always be or how our relationship will always be, we start to check out. And the reality in that season was I had some work to do because marriage in difficult seasons can maybe be more helpful and more illustrative of what God wants to do in us. We needed counseling. We found a counselor. I needed to be less selfish in my effort to work hard. A lot of times I was emotionally withdrawn. We had stuff to work on. But friends, the, difficult of, the difficulty of that season gave way to better seasons in the future. What's the point? As we turn to Song of Solomon, chapter 2, we have this beautiful love story. But the reminder is that intimacy and beauty in, in marriage is on the far side of the challenges we face. And the best relationships aren't the little spark of, of new infatuation. No, they're the ones that have, have lasted through horrible difficulties and say, through everything we faced, I would never leave you or abandon you. And this is the picture of perfect love that Christ calls us to. You know, this metaphor of marriage is used for our relationship with Christ throughout the New Testament, especially in Ephesians 5. So this book teaches us both about our love relationship with God and how we're called to live into deeper, healthy, better human relationships, that our human relationships might be a light to the world. Nobody cares about how, what you say you're defined as. They care about how you actually behave. Are our relationships God-honoring? And so as just way of context, as you take a look at chapter 2, we're going to be looking at all of chapter 2 around this beautiful, covenant, faithful, sacrificial relationship and the gratification that ends up very intimate and physical. But that gratification comes through this deep pursuit of serving one another and being present to one another. So just kind of again, by way of introduction, there's just two characters in chapter two, two lovers literally, and those following along metaphorically, two lovers represent Christ and, and us, the church. And so in, in chapter two, the female narrator continues to pursue. Now, this is an interesting book. They said probably written about the sixth century BCE, a love poem, mostly narrated by a woman, which makes it unique in the canon of scripture. We don't, many of our books are narrated by men, but... Song of Solomon is unique, narrated by a woman. The woman is the main speaker in Song of Solomon. She'll speak 53% of the time. The healthy male relationship, the Christ figure, he'll speak 34% of the time. And the friends speak another 13% of the time. And this chapter speaks about desire. And desire is important because desire indicates a willingness to grow. Desire indicates a willingness to, to grow and to be shaped and when we desire better relationships, we're able to be more like who Christ is calling us to be. And when we desire deeper relationship with Christ, we're saying, you know, I know that I've been a believer for 20 years or two years, but I don't want to just go off, you know, what I called myself in the past. I want to be shaped now. And so at the outset, I've got this question for you of, of, of this desire question. 
If desire indicates a barometer of health in your relationship, what do you desire in your life? What do you desire with your God? God made humanity in in his image to experience the cosmos, and then he set us in the cosmos and gave us relationship, that we would know more of ourselves in relationship with one another. It's amazing, it's beautiful, it's staggering. That even in the intimacy of man and God in the garden, God says, this intimacy will be complete when I give you a woman. And you love each other and you serve each other and you fit together. And we soiled it, but the reality is is that this relationship remains a calling. And so today as we turn to chapter 2, this is kind of, I want to say that God desires us that we would know his love more fully and that our healthy human relationships would represent his perfect love. So this is our big idea that we align under this morning as we look at the second chapter of Song of Solomon, that in every season we need to trust that we're being prepared or being pruned or being provided for more intimacy for loving God and loving others. And our choice, our choice rests in doing the work of loving others as God loves us. We can say God loves us. How do we live that out in how we love one another? That's what we're being called to. So let's take a look at the first point or outline, the season of preparation. This is the first six verses of, of uh, Song of Solomon chapter 2. And we just heard this read for us where the female says, like a lily among thorns is my darling among the young women. I'm sorry, he says that. And then she, well, she says, I am a rose of Sharon, a lily of valleys. He says, like a lily among thorns is my darling among women. And she continues, like an apple tree among the trees of the forest is my beloved among the young men. I delight to sit in his shade, and his fruit is sweet to my taste. Let him lead me to the banquet hall, let his banner of me be love. Strengthen me with raisins, refresh me with apples, for I am faint with love. His left arm is under my head, his right arm embraces me. So in certain parts of of the book, there's going to be distance, there's going to be longing, there's going to be missing each other, but in chapter 2, they're actually physically touching at the beginning. That the pursuit, the desire they have for one another, it's it's, it's coming full circle. He, He calls her a rose of Sharon. A rose of Sharon. Now, rose would have been incredibly unique in, in ancient Palestine. So scholars are divided. They're divided because rose of Sharon now, rose of Sharon, is actually a flowering vine, which interestingly enough, because we talked about pruning and, and vine making in the last series where Jesus says, I am, I am the vine. And that for vineyards to grow into the greatness of great fruit, it requires a lot of pruning. 90% of the average vine ends up on the earth pruned away to leave the stuff closest to the heart of the vine. We said that in the last series. Rose of Sharon, same thing. For it to get its stately shape, arborists say, it must be pruned regularly. I think that's interesting because healthy love often can feel like pruning and being shaped and being reminded as I was seven years into marriage that I had pieces of the way that I was serving my wife that needed to change. I was very selfish I need to come face to face with what healthy covenant relationship looked like. So he calls her the Rose of Sharon. She calls him the apple tree um, among the pines. Now there's this contrast in verse 2, verse 3. He says, you're like a lily among thorns. She says, you're an apple tree among pines. And anyone that's around a lot of pine trees knows that the acidity in a pine forest from the needles makes a fruit tree hard to grow. So their love is unique. They see in each other a contrast from the world around. Not the thorns that... He's seen everywhere else, she's like a lily. She says, not like the other pine trees, you're like an apple tree. There's something beautiful, and they're being prepared for this intimacy that awaits them. 
And it's very actually sensual and sexual. Verse 3, I delight to sit in his shade. His fruit is sweet to my taste. Depending on what you read, your mind can go hog wild there. Some people like it to be really literal. Some people it's more than literal. But it's beautiful that our bodies are a shade to one another. That we provide both sustenance and meaning to one another in healthy human covenant relationship. She says, I delight to sit in the, in the shade and his fruit is sweet. She's, she's saying the desire will be consummated. And she then says, let him lead me. She's relenting control. And it's beautiful because it's woman first. She's not saying you can do whatever you want, but she says, let him lead me. She's trusting and she's vulnerable. And then she says, may his banner over me be love. May he care for me. And then she says, may he feed me raisins, which is actually in the ancient world a fertility reference because they would make raisin cakes to make a female body more fertile. So she says, you know, I want, I'm going to relent control. I want him to care for me. I want him to feed me raisins. And she says, I need him to provide for me. And yes, there's a, there's a sexuality and a, and a sensuality laden throughout the language, but it's deeper than that. It's intimacy caring for one another, preparing for one another. Does your love look like provision? Or does it often look like self-gratification? Like everyone in the room has that question asked, if you're, in a, if you're in a marriage relationship, what does your love look like? Well, we're called to be apple trees among the pines, flowers among thorns. That loving well means we're different. And then we're providing for one another deeply. I mean, I, I'm... 18 years, you know, there's certain things that like never change about your relationship. One of the things that I just, I struggle with is I was raised in a Norwegian home. Shout out to the Norwegians in the room. And uh, in my home growing up, sickness was a weakness. And so if you were sick, best to be left alone. Like 10, 12 hours, like, hey, you're sick. We're just going to like clear out. My wife was raised in an entirely different kind of home where you're sick. You might actually need people to care for you and be loving and bring you food or drinks or whatever you might need. But man, so often the way that I want to care for my wife when she's sick is kind of the way that I think she should be cared for. And it can be very, just frank, cause arguments. Because I'm trying to love her the way that I think she should be loved instead of in her time of need saying, what do you need from me? And healthy love is seeing what the needs are in the other and saying, I care for you enough to meet your needs, to, to relent, to be open to you, to be shaped by you. And so there's this beautiful kind of paradigm being set up, the, the, the lily and the thorns, the apple and the pine trees, that in the midst of a world gone mad, that beauty and provision in Song of Solomon is found in one another. And Martin Luther said this in an old depiction of this verse. He said, even if I knew that tomorrow the world would go to pieces, I would still plant my apple tree. Like no matter what happens in the future, we are called to have this robust love that provides and sustains and cares for other people in the midst of a world that often can feel difficult and confusing. And so in the season of preparation, their love is sustaining and, and covening, uh, covering them in the midst of their covenant love. And that's what they have. They have this covenant love where they're making each other feel cared for, where they have a touch, yes, but it's built out of their trust. And, and that's why we as the church, we have said, be careful with touch. Be careful with it. Now, in, a, in an effort to kind of promote the carefulness, like look at verse 7. 
She says, daughters of Jerusalem, she's saying to her friends, maybe the other women in the harem, we had said last week, there's a harem, Solomon has a thousand wives, he's distorted what love looks like. But verse 7, she's saying to her friends, daughters of Jerusalem, I charge you by the gazelles and by the does of the field, do not arouse or awaken love until it so desires. This warning will get repeated several times throughout Song of Solomon. That there's something about sensuality that is beautiful. Raisin cakes, banner over love, the fruit of the tree. It's dripping with saying, hey, sensuality and your body's like God has made us on purpose. But be warned, she says to her friends, not to awaken love until it so desires. Because with great beauty comes responsibility. And the church, in an effort to safeguard our purity, has kind of covered up a lot of our intimacy with kind of this cloak of like it's all bad. Our bodies are bad. The touch is bad. And then, you know, we kind of launch people in a Christian marriage and we say, all right, I know we've told you it's bad for most of your life, but go, it's, it's great now. It's good. Have fun. And the reality of Song of Solomon is there's this interwoven beauty of the human body, but this warning of verse 7 is that touch is a byproduct of the trust. And so if you're single in the room, not yet married, be warned that, that sensuality needs to be guarded. And that healthy sexuality is a byproduct of a deep emotional life and a deep spiritual life. And then, yes, a deep physical connection. But, of course, we're wired to, to kind of want to dwell over here in the physical connection land. And it actually comes at the expense of the emotional and the spiritual connection if it happens too fast. And so, be careful. Guard your touch. And guard who you're touching with. So you're not growing a deeper relationship then your spiritual and emotional life can come to bear. There's this warning. And to married people, don't ignore the foundation. That this book is encouraging us to continue to trust each other and that our touch would be born from this place of touch and trust. I mean, this is the thing that you hear um, this day and age, people with purity rings. Now, I don't, this is not calling you out if you gave a purity ring, if you're wearing a purity ring, if you don't do purity rings. But a lot of times, the conversation with young adults that we've done ministry with is, I feel like I can't wear the ring anymore of purity because I've made mistakes. And I don't want to take it off. I feel trapped. And so there's this, there's this gap between who I'm presenting to be and who I think God knows me to be. And then the shame comes in. And the shame covers us up. And the reality, friends, just to talk spiritually, is that every one of us, we wear the ring. Because Christ has called us pure and called us good and said, no matter where you've been, I want you to know that you're not disqualified of a life of loving me and loving others. Believe that you're still good. And, and then also, like he's, Christ said to the woman caught in adultery, now, leave the life of sin. Like, don't just constantly be in places where sh shame and darkness and brokenness will enter in. Just leave it and just guard your physical life. Kind of save that for a covenant relationship Grow your emotional and spiritual life instead. I, I was raised in a context that I believed that if I was a virgin, that God would love me more. I, just, I was taught that, that the virginity was to be safeguarded, but we didn't talk about other forms of touching. And it set up this really dangerous paradigm where one part of sexuality was off limits and everything else was on limits. I will tell you, because I, I have needed to change and repent, I did not honor women with the way that I sought physical intimacy with them as a young man. And that, that, 
Last week we talked about upstream issues causing downstream problems. I've had to really work to repent and, and redeem sexuality. So guard it. And know that it's good, but know that it comes with responsibility. You know, because I had, you know, honestly uh, just made mistakes in dating life and just not pursuing girls for the right relationship, but more just that kind of hookup culture. That when I started to date Heather, God played a profound joke on me. I fell in love with her right before getting in a van and driving around the country for six months. And so what we did, we literally, we would once a week talk on pay phones and we had calling cards. Do you remember? You had to like type in 27 numbers on a, and if you're under 30, you're like, I, you lost me, old man. But just everyone else in the room is like, I remember those. Yeah, type in the numbers and you get one wrong. You're like, ah, oh, you know. And we would talk once a week on pay phones and the rest of the time we would talk with dictaphones. I was driving around the country in a van. Heather was finishing her senior year and we, we just flat out couldn't talk. But we missed each other. And so we would make tapes one to another. And there's some people are like, this is so old. I feel like you're telling me like that you spoke into a can on a string. But this is what we did. And we would record our thoughts and our needs and our hopes and our prayers. And then we would mail them in the U.S. Postal Service. And then this little tape would arrive. And then you would listen. Well, what good is a thought from two weeks ago? That's ridiculous. It taught me about the woman that I was preparing to spend the rest of my life with. And God was protecting me of like, hey, your physical life will grow, but first I want your emotional and your spiritual life to lead. Guard the physical touch. And know it's beautiful and it belongs in healthy covenant relationship. And for people in healthy covenant relationship where the touch has, has disappeared because you're in a season without touch, work to rebuild the trust. And know that the touch is good and speak about it and work for a new season. And if you're single, protect it. Protect it, friends. It has this propensity to destroy. Oh, there's a beauty here in the sensuality of Song of Solomon. So just protect it. Because the seasons change. Look at verse 11 through 13. See, the winter is past. The rains are over and gone. Flowers appear on the earth. The season of singing has come. The cooing of doves is heard in our land. The fig tree forms its fruit. The blossoming vines spread their fragrance. Arise, come my darling, my beautiful one, come with me. Like literally here, the season has changed. Like the weather has changed, the birds have shown up. Those in the Pacific Northwest, you know, in these small times where it feels like we're actually in spring, it's beautiful. And the season changes. And friends, if you can hear one thing this morning, hear this. Do not confuse this season with the entirety of the year that you're living in. That you can make it through hard seasons. And you can learn things in this season of singleness or in dating or in engagement or in married or in divorce or in widowhood. In every season there's value to teach you more about loving God and loving other people. Because the seasons change. That brings us to the second point of the outline that the season of infatuation gives way. They pursued each other. And then there's the season of infatuation where you see these two are crazy about each other. Look at verses 8, 9, and 10 here of chapter 2. Listen, my beloved. Look, here he comes, leaping across the mountains, bounding over the hills. My beloved's like a gazelle or a young stag. Look, there he stands behind our wall, gazing through the windows, peering through the lattice. My beloved spoke and said to me, Arise, my darling, my beautiful one, come with me. And then most of us are like, okay, that's just weird. Like, why is he staring at her? And she's so infatuated, she's like, this is wonderful. He's staring. Guys in the room, 
If I could just speak to you for a moment, this will not work, okay? Do not stare. Do not stare behind windows. No, that's not, no. But they're, they're infatuated with one another. It's, and it's not even grounded in reality. He's leaping across mountains. He's bounding over hills. He, he's, you know, she's speaking metaphorically of the pursuit. And they're infatuated. And they see the amazing qualities of one another. And it's grounded in this relationship that she's deeply loved by him. This woman will be taken into the king's court later. There's, there's violence in this story. But here, she's with the one she trusts. And she's, she's leading. She's letting him lead her. She's saying, I have needs. I, I want to meet your needs. She feels adored. She feels sought after. It's beautiful. And there's this common understanding and love that if we find the perfect person for us, then all of our needs will be met. That, that when I find the right person, that everything I need, every season will be perfect and will be easy. And so we start shopping for this perfect person, this perfect relationship, and it is a lie. There's an inherent flaw in this argument because we don't marry perfect people. And when we think that this person will fulfill every need we have, it's not grounded in reality. It becomes an idol of earthly relationship. And we can have healthy human relationship, but everything we need is found only in our relationship with Christ. And we think that every need will be magically gratified by this person that's going to show up in my life. It causes undue stress on relationship. Will we love well? We will. We go through seasons of darkness and disappointment. We will and we do. And if you're going to be built for the long haul, you need to have an understanding that a person can't complete you, only Christ can. Sarah Lipton in the New York Times wrote that both men and women today want a marriage in which they can receive emotional and sexual satisfaction from someone who will simply let them be themselves. They want a spouse who's fun, intellectually stimulating, sexually attractive, with many common interests, and who on top of it all is supportive of their personal goals and of the way they're living now. We want self-gratification. I won't speak for you, but I will speak for myself. I am a selfish human being oftentimes. And so when I get in these seasons where it's like, well, my kids aren't meeting the needs of what I have for them. You know, and my spouse, you know, it sure be nice. They do X, Y, Z. I mean, I can go through the world as if everything is an ATM for my own pleasure. And it's an idol. And it puts undue stress on my marriage. God gives us marriage not to meet every needs, but to teach him, teach us more about his great love. And so that brings us to this point that marriage is a context for blessing and transformation, which requires a lot of hard work and self-sacrifice. And, and sacrifice that if I'm going to understand of how I'm called to love another human as deep as Christ loves me, and this metaphor of marriage that Christ gives us in the New Testament, or this is what our relationship in covenant love is with, where he'll never leave us, we're married to him forever. That our marriages here on earth are meant to be places of transformation and of work and showing up and being real and being vulnerable and saying, I, I'm in a covenant with you. I'm not going to walk away when the season gets hard. Where do we get a model like that? We get it in Scripture. In Scripture, we see what covenant love looks like in Genesis 12 and Genesis 14, where God says to Abraham, this is what love looks like. I will go with you into all the world. And Abraham, I'll never leave you. And you'll be a father to many nations. And Abraham says, it's impossible. It's taking so long. God says, it'll take longer than you think. But I will never abandon you. 
And he believes in it so much that, that God actually parts the pieces while Abraham sleep, sleeps. And he, he steps through the pieces of, a, of an oxen to, to kind of form this covenant that we belong to God. And nothing, nothing will pull us away from this covenant divine relationship. Later in Genesis, we have the story of humanity. Humanity being humans, being selfish, being broken. Abraham has, has failed his wife, called her a sister, and he's, he's run. And now Jacob has, has done all sorts of horrible things. And in the midst of Genesis 28, God comes to Jacob in his sleep, and Jacob dreams, and he has this intimate reaction with God. And God says, again, I will never leave you, for we're in a covenant together. And though the seasons may be difficult, may you find yourself longing and wanting, I want to change you, I want to grow you, I want to transform you. I will never leave you. The guy that married Heather and I gave us this metaphor for our marriage. He says, you are choosing God's instrument to shape you. I took seventh grade shop, so my mind immediately went to the, to the image of a lathe. You know, in seventh grade, they give us this big chunk of wood, and we'd go get the sharpest knife we could, and we'd start turning the wood, and we would lay the lathe on it. We'd be, you know, in our mind making this beautiful art, and it would come out like just a caveman's club, but that's okay. We were having a great time, and on a lathe, we're shaping things. Oh, this is what marriage would be like? This sounds wonderful, we thought when we were engaged. Being shaped, this will be easy. This will be good. I'll get my needs met. But the reality of marriage is that we marry imperfect people and it reminds us of the ways in which we need to be changed ourselves. And so yes, marriage teaches us about our own shortcomings and the own places where we need to seek to be changed and be less selfish and more loving and shaped. And these seasons of shaping can be quite difficult, but there's other seasons where the shaping feels quite easy. But in every season, God's calling us, hey, be shaped. And may your glory in the covenant relationship with me and, and may your relationships one to another give glory to me on earth. Our, our marriages are meant to be markers of God's transformation. Our marriages are meant, that's why we get married in churches and we stand before God and witnesses and say, may this marriage be a blessing to the world. Now, if you're single, it's like, well, what does this have to do with me? You're in a season where you're being prepared for the future. What are you preparing for? What kind of love are you getting set up for? And in the midst of waiting for maybe a different human relationship, may you know you can love God deeply and well in the season. And he could be your best friend. He could be your lover. Married people, man, I said, no one cares what we say about our marriage. They care about how we act and why my wife and I care so deeply about guarding marriages and protecting marriages and and helping marriages get back is because after 18 years, we know about the seasons. We, we could show you snapshots that look horrible and other snapshots that look beautiful. And all the while, we're being formed, a love story being written. And when people's human relationships start to break down, their faith starts to break down. So we're called deeply in the church to guard the power of the Christian marriage. I was flipping through the New York Times on Thursday morning on my phone, and I came across this article on Thursday morning. Is open marriage a happier marriage? And about the science of new monogamy, that the new monogamy they're calling is that when my needs are being met in my traditional covenant relationship, that I add partners to the mix. And this long-form article about maybe open marriage is a happier marriage for society, and that we can add new partners and new creativity, and it was sickening, actually. 
And it's such a distortion from the beauty of sexuality of Song of Songs too, that we are called to love one for one for life. And that sexuality belongs inside a healthy covenant relationship that will have seasons of all sorts of ups and downs, but say through it all we belong to one another. Not adding in new partners when I need a spice of life, but serving each other, loving each other, in the difficulty and the beauty of a love relationship. The infatuation fades. Real Christian marriage is based on sacrifice. You know, I get to do rings and weddings all the time. I've been saying this and studying this recently that, you know, we marry people in the church and many people come from these backgrounds where they've experienced a lot of shame and brokenness and we kind of launch them and think Christian marriage would be easy. It's not. It's no easier. And actually Christian divorce rates in our country are the same. And some of you in the room have been through divorce and you know just how painful it is. And it's why we care about protecting people from the pain of divorce. But love takes choice. And some of you in this room are like, man, I was willing to choose love, but my partner was not. And the reality is that's hard is that we don't control our human relationships, but we are called to model healthy love as much as we can control. And as Christians, we should have marriages built not on our gratification, but on sacrifice. Because we were adopted into a family that we never earned. That God said, in the midst of your sinfulness, I will die for you. That's the story of faith. That we didn't earn it. And God says, now you're part of my family forever. And so our marriages as Christians identify as marriages, we should say, yeah, we should have real intimacy. Bound in our sacrifice one to another. And that takes us to our third season here. The season of intimacy. The season of intimacy Chapter 2, beautifully intimate, sexual, sensual, very, very intimate. Very metaphorical for our life of Christ pursuing us and us pursuing him. Very physical here that healthy human Christian marriages should have beautiful intimacy. And a word again for, for the singles in the room. Know that this season matters in your life. And I'm sorry for people sometimes in the church, out of the church, that make you feel less than complete because you don't have a ring on your finger. This season matters. And God has given you this season to know him. So love God and love others and run to the cross and know that this season is is profoundly meaningful in your life. And whatever future relationship you may or may not have in happen this season matters it grieves me when people are living outside of their current season and they're sure that this season they want a different story and so they want to be older younger single married and waste a lot of our lives wishing the seasons would change enjoy these days for what you've been given don't miss the season you're in and for married people in the room in the season of intimacy you married the one you love now love the one you married I think of the work that you put in into pursuing the married relationship, the dates, the talks, the dictaphone tapes, and whatever context it was for you. And I get it. You got married and jobs, and there was a remodel, and maybe you had a kid or you wanted a kid, and we've been through hard things with our parents. Like, I get it. Your marriage should be a marker of a place where you're investing. What do you desire? Is your marriage growing? Well, how do, we, how do we actually do that, Scott? That sounds good, but, you know, we're busy, whatever. I want my marriage to matter. How? I've got three practical kind of steps for us to have healthy human relationships, to practice more godly marriages. 
First, practice vulnerability. We need to practice vulnerability. This is where the strength that we long for in marriage, we want to have great marriages, it comes in places of seeking more vulnerability. Look in verse 14 of Song of Songs, chapter 2. My dove is in the clefts of the rock and the hiding places on the mountainside. Show me your face, he says. Let me hear your voice, for your voice is sweet and your face is lovely. And though there's this piece where she's a little bit withdrawn, he's speaking metaphorically, she's, she's hidden away somewhere, maybe she's still behind the veil, maybe she's pulling back emotionally, we don't know, it's a love poem, but he says, show me your face. We need to be people seeking one another and practicing vulnerability. Real intimacy is found in vulnerability. Remember what Genesis says, we were naked and unashamed, that we were actually created to be known by someone else. And so be vulnerable with one another, even when it means you need to confess sin, even means when you need to kind of speak about hard things, even when it means you speak about insecurities, practice vulnerability. Second, protect against the outside forces. Protect what's been given to you in your, in your marriage. Protect it from the outside forces. Look at verse 15. Catch for us the foxes, he says, the little foxes that ruin the vineyards, our vineyards that are in bloom. It's a little bit Random, maybe, it seems. But there's this vineyard, which in ancient Israel is a depiction of, of fruitfulness and growth and healthiness. And, and he says, catch for us these foxes. There's literally foxes in the, in the vineyard. The, 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 there's things that are trying to destroy the very intimacy that we're enjoying. Uh, last weekend, Heather and I taught this marriage conference on, on Friday, Saturday. On Monday of the week, we're going toe-to-toe in one of the worst fights we've ever had. I mean, we're just, we're battling it out. We're like, oh yeah, we're going to talk four days from now, like experts of marriage. We're like barely able to even like do this right now. But we were aware all weekend that forces are preying on us, trying to force us apart. If our marriages are a marker of God's faithfulness, it makes sense then that the world would try to push us apart. Protect your intimacy. Protect your relationship. There are foxes in the vineyard. And I don't know what context, that, what that looks like for you. There's things trying to steal your purity, trying to steal your intimacy, trying to steal your joy. Maybe it's busyness. Maybe it's kids. Maybe it's lack of kids. Maybe it's, you know, parents. I don't know what's going on, but we need to be protecting against outside forces. And then finally, pursue the gift. Pursue the gift of this intimacy awaiting in Song of Solomon 2. Look at verse 16 and 17. My beloved is mine, she says. She owns him in 6th century BC. This is so countercultural. My beloved is mine and I am his. There's a mutuality of this, of this intimacy. He browses among the lilies until the day breaks and the shadows flee. All night long he's browsing among the lilies. I don't know what's going on there, but it's good, right? It's good. Until the day breaks and the shadows flee, turn my beloved and be like a gazelle or like a young stag on the rugged hills. We need to be pursuing the gift of time together. Okay, there's this myth that if we can just take a vacation once a year, we'll be good. No, it's a myth. And we need, we need quantity of time, not just quality of time. Now, be with each other, pursue the gift, and pursue the healthy touch born of a healthy trust in your marriage. Know that you've been given this covenant to steward and shepherd and serve and be shaped. The seasons change. When I tell you, you know, last Monday, huge fight, teaching a marriage conference on the weekend, and then I went out to Whidbey Island to celebrate 
our anniversary. We're, we're sitting there on Tuesday night in Coopville, and it's real life. Heather's warding off a migraine, which she often suffers from, and so she's you know, holding up, iced her head. I take, want to take her pictures. Oh, you know, I don't, we're not even that dressed up. But it's like good food and sitting there on this island and I'm thinking back of 18 years. I'm thinking of this woman who's birthed four kids. I'm thinking of this woman who has lost a child and a marriage that has not always been perfect by any stretch but continues to do the work of real love relationship. I was crying. So profoundly grateful. God is calling us to be wooed by him that he would be the lover of our lives and to be modeling this love in healthy human relationships for all the days of our lives, that our life and our relationship on earth would bear glory to him in a countercultural way. And may the words of God encourage you, the people of God. And I recognize when we start talking about our singleness and our marriage, our sexuality, our shame, this is rough stuff. But know that God is meeting you this morning, encouraging you. Keep drawing closer to him. Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for the scriptures to remind us of how you're speaking to us, challenging us, and changing us, making us aware of the ways in which we need to be transformed. I pray for my brothers and sisters in the room who are in places of singleness, chosen or unchosen, that you would encourage them that this season of their discipleship matters a great deal. Lord, give them deep and robust friendships. Give them intimacy with you. May they feel like complete and whole beings in this season because it matters. And Lord, for the married people in the room, give them the courage to be married well and to serve often and to laugh as much as possible and to pray for forgiveness that your glory would be shown in the midst of the marriages present in the room. But God, we want to follow you all of our days. Make us more like you. We beg and pray. In your name we pray, amen. Will you stand with us as we close in song? As always, I want to remind you, there's prayer team people down front. If you want to pray over something that's just causing you some, some stress or anxiety, or as you stay in your seat, as we worship, may you hear the words of Jesus wooing you.